All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fuckstables? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckaholics? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome. Welcome to the show. I am here. I'm a different person now. I am fi- I'm a 51-year-old man. I'm a 51-year-old man. My birthday was on uh Saturday and uh you know, you know I I'm feeling it. I don't like to admit that I'm feeling it, but I but I am feeling it a little bit. I, I, I don't know how I'm feeling it exactly, but I do know that almost immediately I was at LA Podfest and some pictures were taken with me and I was looking at the pictures differently. I was seeing a uh not a bad looking and not a, an unfit uh man, but a, a middle aged man, a a fifty one year old man. Something just gave way. And I always knew this would happen. It is a matter of perception, but I have to be honest with myself. You know, there is that uh, there is that moment in a president's career, especially a younger president. Uh, and not look, I'm not comparing myself to the president. I do not have that kind of responsibility. I, I do have a, a garage to manage and I do have some things to clean up. But I'm by no means comparing my job or task in any way to the president. Quite, quite honestly, I think I'm doing a, a, a more honest job in terms of occupation. But uh, but there's that weird moment where you, you compare pictures to first term and second term presidents and you're like, holy shit, what happened to that guy? And it's really just aging, but it's 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 something you don't notice until you notice it all at once. And it, it happened. I noticed it all at once. I, I looked at a picture that somebody took of myself and uh, Amber Preston, who was uh, on the on the live podcast last night. And I was like, oh, my God, that look at my 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 little middle aged head. I, I I don't know. I, I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to have to accept it, aren't I? There's no reason to be one of those people. I cannot fight the tide of age. I will not dye my hair. And anybody who thinks that I do already, you can go fuck yourself. I have gray temples. The top is just naturally the way it is. I'm not dying anything, all right? I do know this. I do know that Rivers Cuomo is on the show. I do know that Weezer's new album, Everything Will Be All Right in the End, is coming out tomorrow. That's September 30th. It's sort of a, a return to form for Weezer. And when I talked to people about uh, interviewing Rivers, they were like, oh, you know, that's that's not going to be easy. It's interesting how people are publicly framed as uh, as being something. You, you know, I did a lot of reading uh, on him because, uh, you know, I, I like Weezer, but I had to go back and sort of go through the catalog a bit and get a sense of who he is and, and you know, his uh, eccentricity. Uh, but the interesting thing is, you know, you get down to just talking to a guy for an hour and you get sort of an idea of who he is. And it doesn't really match uh, the reputation or the myth. Uh, you know, he's just a, a, a bit of a eccentric guy who uh, he, he's, he's very focused and he's uh, holding it together, man. Also, I want to mention this and this seems it might seem a little out of character for me, but I don't think so. Uh, Melissa Etheridge's new album, This Is Me, M-E, comes out tomorrow, and you can and you can get it wherever you get music. Now, here's, here's the reason I'm telling you this. is that Melissa, stop by the garage here. We had a great conversation. I'm going to put it up soon, so you can look forward to that, but you can get the record, This Is M-E, uh, in the meantime. And I, I tell you, man, I listen to this record, and she's fucking going for it. She is rocking out at 52 or 53 or however old she is. We talked about it. I'm not... I'm not saying something out of school here, 
Because that was one of those situations where I get an opportunity to interview somebody, and, and it sort of, it seems like, wow, I never even thought about that, but why the fuck wouldn't I want to talk to Melissa Etheridge? We had a great conversation. And that's coming up. So look forward to that, will you? So here's what's going on. Uh, last night at LA PodFest, we did a live podcast. I also appeared on Aisha Tyler's podcast on Friday. It was a great turnout. Uh, thanks for coming out if you were in the audience. I did a panel of... Uh, who was on my panel? Uh, it, the, I'm, I'm obviously not going to post this for a bit, but it was sort of a, an interesting event because my niece is in town, my 15-year-old niece who's been here before. I've talked about her before. I find it's a, it's a, it's a real privilege for me to, be, to have the opportunity to be the cool uncle. Now, I don't really know how to be around um, teenagers, but it, you know, I'm better at it than I thought. And what I have found, given that I only have to be a cool uncle and uh, you know, I don't have to be parent, is that she's here for three days, and whatever insecurities I may have about uh, being around or knowing what to do with a 15-year-old are placated very easily by just buying her whatever she wants. And then being able to say, like, wow, I can't believe your dad didn't buy that, or, oh, that's, you know, no one was going to get that for you. Sure, I'll get it for you. It's, it is a win-win situation. But there are educational moments that, are, that can be a bit disconcerting. So uh, Eden and I... We uh, went to L.A. PodFest, and I, you know, someone's going to listen to this, and I'm going to be, look, you know, this is this is the life I live, all right, and you know, it's it's an assumption that that kids today, you know, they have they're getting a lot more input, they know more things, or they certainly seen more things than uh, than I did when I was 15. I had to really look for it. We didn't have the internet, and we didn't have access to to wrong. That's one thing you get as a kid now is you have uh, full access, full open access to the world of wrong. And, you know, I'm wrong. I know it's a moral judgment, but you know what I'm talking about. Some things you don't need to see until you're, you're 18 or 20 or maybe even fucking 50, to be honest with you. So we walk into PodFest and there's a lot of podcasts going on. And uh, someone comes running up to me, a large guy with a beard uh, who, uh, who apparently works for, uh, for Eddie If's podcast. I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't remember what that, that's called. But I, I literally had just walked in with my 15-year-old niece, who, who, mind you, you know, looks 15. So this guy, look, I'm not going to fault him. It was an awkward moment. I'm not even that upset about it, but he comes running up. He's like, hey, hey, man, you want, you want to come on the show? And I'm like, what, what do you mean? Like, we're doing a show right now. And I'm like, I, I got to go, you know, prepare, and, you know, I'm going to be on Aisha's show. No, you got to come in there, man. There's a, there's a tranny in there, and, uh, and he's got his dick out. And my 15-year-old niece is sitting right there. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I don't need to. No, you got to see it. You got you to see it. You, you don't want to see a tranny dick? And I'm like, you know, this is my niece. Uh, she's 15. Now, there was a couple of problems with what was going on. One, I was put in this awkward position. Now, I'm not assuming that my 15-year-old niece didn't know what he was talking about. But, but also, there was a correction to be made. And I said, uh, he walked away. And I'm like, please, can, can we not? Uh, no, I, I, we don't want to see a transgender's dick. See, I had to correct. See, I had to correct. Because, you know, when after the moment had passed and it could not be uh, erased or put back in whatever dark jar it came from, which was this large man with a beard, I had to clarify that tranny was not an appropriate uh, a term for a transgender person. So we passed on that. And then we went and did, I, I did Aisha's Tyler show and I introduced her to uh, some of the podcast community. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, as we were walking out, uh, my friend Sam Tripoli is running around. Sam Tripoli is a comic. And, 
and he's just walking through the hall going, did anyone see where the where the girl with the black dildo went? Did anyone see where the, the girl with the black dildo went? Literally two or three times. And I had to look at Eden, and I'm like, I, I didn't see anybody. Did you? No? Okay. What do you, let's go get some ice cream or something. Do you want to? So that was uh, that was an interesting non-parenting moment for me. There, there. It, I, I guess that that is the tricky thing about being a parent in in, in a broader sense, is that uh, they're out in the world. Stuff is going to be dumped into their head, uh, you know, one way or the other. There, you know, the the input is out there. They're going to be walking through this world of all information all the time, and you just gotta, you know, I I honestly think that that at certain ages they can't absorb anything. But man. I, I think I was a little violated by uh, by what happened, to be honest with you. And, and I'm a grown man, and I I've experienced a lot of things. But it was a it was an exciting situation. I think it's behind us, and uh, and I think we did the right thing all in all by just you know minding our own business and uh, enjoying our night and and not talking about it again. And and in a, in an amazing display of uh, of friendship and uh, and and camaraderie. Dave Anthony, who uh, who appears on the show, Marin is also a writer and someone I've known for a good 20 years, uh, in front of an audience of about 250, 300 people, as I began the live WTF, uh, came out with a box of cupcakes and there were candles in them and it was very sweet and it, it even, it, it was very hard for me to, to actually be a dick, which is what Dave and I do to each other and, and I was a dick in, initially and then I backed off it and uh, and thanked him honestly, and then a room full of podcast fans in a live situation saying happy birthday, and uh, it was it was beautiful, and I um you know I I made the wish I always make uh, when I blow out the candles. I hope and wish someday I can just accept love in general and appreciate it. And I and and I and I do, and I am conscious of it. I'm not, and I'm not going to be ungracious. I'm not just going to blow through it when it comes at me. I'm going to feel it and not freak out. That's that's my dream. That's my wish. That's my hope. But I, I had a very nice birthday. Okay, so strap in. Uh, we're going to now uh, have a conversation with with the elusive and uh, intense. Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. Enjoy their new record. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you on the other side of it. Are you a musician too? I play. You know, I don't call myself a musician. You know, All these guitars are yours though? Yes. Um, yeah, I just bought that one. About that Gibson there, you play Strats, right? Um, in the studio, I play Gibson. Oh, really? I usually play Rick Ocasek's um, Gibson Junior Les Paul. Les Paul Junior with the one pickup. Yeah, I love that th- those things. Yeah. Oh, so you get that dirty sound. Yeah, you, that's yeah. that's the Weezer sound. Yeah, it is. It, that's where that's where it comes from. That makes sense, man. Yeah, it's his guitar. Oh wow! But uh, it's not it's not quite reliable enough on stage, so. I I have like a, um, a strat replica thing that we made. Oh yeah, it's very durable. So how are you feeling in general? A uh, little carsick. Where'd you come from? Do you live here? Where do you live? Santa Monica, which feels like a world away. 
It is. If I have to go to the West Side, I feel like I have to pack a tent and a lunch. (laughs) It's like the worst thing that could happen is I have to go to Santa Monica. How long have you been living down there? I first moved there in 91, and uh, then Weezer uh, Weezer formed in the beginning of 92, and we all lived there. And um, I was going to SMC, Santa Monica City College. When you when you moved out here, but you went so you moved out here from the East Coast, right? I moved out in '89 and I went straight to Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. why not? Why uh, not go throw yourself into the and get beat up? Yeah, what, what happened that that year? That was amazing. That was uh, the Sunset Strip was still rocking and '89. So, oh right, so the hair metal was just sort of dying. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, transition period. Well, it was in full effect when I arrived, and then it lasted about another year. Yeah. And uh, I got a job at Tower Records there, and they, um, the other employees there turned me on to Pixies and Sonic Youth and 60s Records, Velvet Underground, Beach Boys. and That was the first you'd heard of them? Really? Oh, yeah. I was, I was just um, a metal shredder guy in the 80s. Oh, really? Yeah. So you grew up just like wailing. Yeah. And, and no one had ever introduced you to the world of sort of like thoughtful, arty kind S- of- Songs. Yeah. So- <laughs> It's all about guitar solos, <laughs> right? Ingve Malmsteen. You could? Can you do that? I could. Yeah. Yeah. I was in an Ingve cover band. Seriously. Yeah. So you were that proficient a noodler? Well, yeah, like maybe a B plus noodler. <laughs> <laughs> did you have long hair? Yeah. So you did the whole thing. I did the whole thing and moved out here with my band from Connecticut and to be hard rockers, to be metal dudes. Yeah. And uh, it it didn't didn't work. Who were the ones that made the most impact on you immediately? I'm a big Velvet Underground fan myself. Yeah, Velvet Underground and and the Pixies and the Beach Boys. The so, Beach Boys. Yeah, started listening to them in '91, and uh, got Weezer together and started singing and writing lyrics as opposed to just playing solos. You never had done that. You never really sung before. Um, I had when I had to, but I didn't think of myself as a lead singer because I didn't. I was like didn't quite have that jeff tate or rob halford high octave whoops that's my phone that's high a good octave phone. that's a good phone sound when you listen to the beach boys though it's weird with the beach boys like uh you know melodically and the layers of sound are amazing but i i find that there's a, a sadness in his singing that i cannot really tolerate for very long oh interesting have you ever felt that it's like there's a heavy heartedness under there that i just can't handle there's a vulnerability that just like kills me wow yeah i mean i definitely hear it but it didn't wasn't just de- uh, a de- detracting. No, movie. I mean that's that was why I was attracted to it. It's, yeah, I've, I've heard I've heard of people that don't even hear it and don't get anything out of it. But yeah, you're the first person who's told me he's he feels it and he recognizes it, and it's too much. It's a little much, man. I, I I've only had that happen with a few artists. Uh, Daniel Johnson is another one on his stuff, and uh, like some of the later Fiona Apple things, where it's just sort of like, oh, it's, it's, I don't know how to help her. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> you never felt that though. We feel it, but it doesn't. It doesn't hurt you necessarily. Yeah, I don't know why it is. So when you first started doing the the Weezer stuff, what were your? I mean, before you did the Blue album, what were you guys really working on? Those songs, or how did you find your way? Uh, if if I can be vague. Uh, well, we started out basically just trying to run in the opposite direction of heavy metal. I think we. This is before Nevermind came out, but even so, we were, I guess, kind of like a Jane's Addiction, um, grungy, kind of a little bit more bluesy than you think of Weezer sounding. And 
I think I was trying to sing with a more gravelly voice, which I'm, it's, I don't have. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go see that, any of those Jane shows when they were, you know, at the beginning? Um, I don't know about the beginning, but in, in 1990, 91, I was, I went to a couple shows. Yeah. It was pretty amazing. Oh yeah. It was so great to be a fan of them because it always felt like the shows were like this really cool event. Like I, I remember, um, this one, one show they had you drive to a, big parking lot where there were a bunch of yellow school buses and everyone gets on the buses yeah and they drove us up to the top of a mountain really yeah <laughs> and they had like a games and a, a, a stage and they played their show and they were just kind of hanging out and it seemed like perry farrell was uh, just so great at, at hosting a party and making an event more than just a show right well he, he went out of his way he got you all buses yeah, and then uh, and then they did Lollapalooza too, and that was just kind of developed that vibe. And uh, I I I think I've always used that him and James as a role model for how to how to make shows feel like something special. Well, there's an intimacy to it, you yeah. know, and there seems to be a respect for your fans because we when you're unique like you guys are, and like well, they certainly were. The fans are sort of a special bunch. You got to treat them like a community on some level. So that's where you got the inspiration because you do a lot of like sort of hands on. Uh, fan uh, engagement. Yeah, we we did the Hoot Nanny. Yeah, um, where we went on tour, and instead of bringing our instruments, we had a hundred fans bring their instruments and whatever it was, uh, mariachi instruments or how orchestral. Did, yeah. <laughs> how did and, that work? Uh, well, it was it was really scary. We didn't know what to expect, and and every every <laughs> night a, was totally different. An army of people with instruments. Yeah. How did you arrange it? How did it? What was the plan? Um, I think we settled on I can't remember five to eight songs and and uh, get, you know gave them advance warning. These are the songs. Make sure you learn learn them, rehearse them, come uh-huh. prepared. And they all took it seriously. And uh, we set it up as half show, half recording session. So right. there'd be several chances to get the song right. If we didn't get it right, we'd do it again. We'd move people around, get the mix right. And, right. Um, they must it, have been thrilled. Yeah, and it, it came out really great, and it was it was really fun for us too. You grew up where in, on the East Coast, right? Mm-hmm. And you were just like uh, obviously a metalhead. Who were your bands then? Who were you driving around listening to? You a Sabbath just, guy? Nope, Sabbath was before my time. Sure, but the records were around. Y- yeah, but they didn't. They sound it sounded old fashioned to me. I was, um, I think, probably the first the first besides Kiss in the seventies was the first band that. Uh, made you know defined metal as something more than just music. It yeah. was it was a culture and yeah. a community to belong to. It was Quiet Riot. Okay, so I was probably eighty three. Uh huh. And so, then from there, it got into Judas Priest and Maiden, and then Metallica and Slayer, and then the Shredders, Ingve. Uh huh. I actually just made a long set of playlists in Spotify. Um, what Rivers listened to in, and then the year. Oh really? Yeah, starting from nineteen eighty, I think. And so I just filled them up with whatever I was listening to in that year. And you can remember? I mean, for the yeah, most part? Cause, and, uh, yeah, because I associate a record with a particular place. Like, uh-huh. I remember I was in the cafeteria at school when I first heard that uh, Master of Puppets or something. Oh, really? I was a sophomore, that sort of thing. So, <laughs> Sitting with a bunch of other like metal dudes? Yeah. And somebody had a boombox? Exactly. They had a boombox and yeah. they put Master of Puppets on and there was that... The, the nice quiet intro and then it breaks into into battery and I thought 
something had gone wrong with a guy's boombox because right. it was suddenly so fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then there's that moment where you realize that your life is different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, there's nothing wrong with this boombox. My life just changed forever yeah. <laughs> here in the cafeteria. <laughs> Music does that, man. Yeah. Your record, your first record was a big record where people were like, what? Because I was in high school, man, when uh, the Cars first record came out. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I knew that Okasik was doing your record, when I heard that, and then you can hear the sound. I mean, you can hear his place in it. Yeah. Like, he's he definitely helped you guide that sound, right? Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, we were already, like, a, cut from the same cloth. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, we're, we're, a, we're a Cars of, of our generation. But he definitely um, has his aesthetic that that is part of what we do in the studio it was it what he he sort of invented a pop aesthetic i mean for his yeah. time in a lot in a lot of ways it's it's what it, it's what he takes away from what we would do rather than what he's adding uh-huh. i'll give you an example on the record we we're just making with him everything will be all right in the end i listened to it it's great it's like you're back to your old uh stuff thanks do you feel that yeah <laughs> I mean, I think it's half going back to classic uh weezer values but and and then also half like trying things we've never tried before but only things only we would try, oh yeah, good, I want you to tell me which ones you think that is and but go tell okay. me about Rick how he he takes away like uh I know for, from my heavy metal roots, I have this instinct to start adding guitar harmonies, like the third, yeah, like yeah. Iron Maiden or jazz yeah. priest and I'm I'm always timid about doing it because, again, Weezer was a turn away from that. See, so on, on this record, when I, I would try, I'd start to add some of that. And yeah. in some cases, he'd say, no, man, that sounds like Boston. <laughs> that sounds like Sticks. <laughs> Nothing against those bands, but it's just, it's funny to hear his point of reference for what is overcooked. Well, the funny thing is, the reason that they're his point of reference is those are the bands he helped bury. Mm-hmm. That, you know, at the time, like when, when you guys came out, what was happening in music and what you guys were fu- up against was the, you know, the death of hair metal and the evolution into this next thing. Then he was really up against Boston and Journey and, uh, and Sticks. So, of course, that's his point of reference. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Boston. <laughs> they had a clean sound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was some produced shit. So, in working with him this time, coming full circle in a way, and uh, is everything going to be okay in the end, Rivers? <laughs> is it, is it, I mean, because like I don't like I haven't followed you as intensely as obviously some other fans, and I know that you've had your own struggles, and you're you're notoriously um, uh, infamous in a way, not necessarily in a bad way, but you know, there's a mythology around you. Hmm. Have you landed into something more grounded for yourself? Oh, definitely. But uh, I I would hope that people take that <clears throat> title as more of a question. Oh, good. Okay. Than, than an assertion. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, you should put a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I I like the ambiguity, and right. and some people will be sure it's one way, and some people will be sure it's another, and and that's fine. Do you live with that ambiguity every day? Yeah, of course. It's a big struggle, right? What's today going to be? It makes it all interesting. Yeah. W- w- whose choice was it to work with Rick again? Uh, well, that was, I think almost, you know, all the choices are our choices. We have, right. we have total control. So um, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the obvious choice when we started thinking about it. Um, but when we realized the kind of sound we were going for and uh, just that, you know, live 
four guys in a room rocking. Yeah. Um, not too many computer tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically how our first album sounded. Who on earth could get that sound better than Rick? Right. And he got it. It yeah. definitely sounds that way. The the Back to the Shack song, like in your mind, like looking at this song list, like in your mind, as the guy that made these songs, what what do you think the songs that are the are going to pop? What what are you hoping for the single to be? The single is Back to the Shack. It is, so I, I, yeah. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so that, that's the one that stuck. But yeah. there, there, it seemed like to me that there was also some nostalgia and some personal history involved in, in the lyrics of that song. Yeah, definitely lyrically. Or, uh, for me, it's like a, um, wanting to go back to be with our, you know, the real Weezer hardcore community again. And it's over the years, uh, it's easy for an artist to get cut off from the the core people yeah. that were there at the beginning and playing in the clubs every week. Um, we were able to get that instant feedback from our small audience and um, figure out where we were going, what we wanted to do. And it was kind of a collaborative process. And With then, the fans. Yeah. I don't know if you called them fans back then. They were more like the audience yeah. in the club. But <laughs> So you guys, when you started playing small clubs and you were... You know, your particular charisma is, is is very unique that I imagine that like it was sort of like um, it started with a few kind of uh, nerdy <laughs> people that knew that something was happening and then it kind of slowly spread out. Yeah. And well, we played a lot with other bands around town. So we're a lot of times we're playing for their fans. Yeah. And, um, so, but all to get, um, you know, in, in that community in LA with the other bands and all the people who are going to shows, we... We figured out where we fit in and how we're going to be different and what we want to say, and we couldn't have done that without that that uh, weekly interaction with the audience. Yeah. And so back to the shack is saying uh, we want to get back to that, and and uh, we've made a real point over the last four years to spend a lot of time with the, with people after the shows and see what what's going on in their lives and see what they're thinking of of what we're doing and oh yeah yeah what do you like how do you do that you just have a line or you just you know no uh, usually um online they organize them themselves and say all right we like these t- five people 10 20 people are going to go back tonight and oh so we'll, they come backstage there's a it's done through the boards through the yeah the, that kind of thing right, facebook right, right and uh and do you find you've had fans that have been there the whole time and that have some grievances sometimes um usually when you talk to people face to face and this was what we really discovered on the weezer cruises yeah that we did when you talk to people face to face the the overriding feeling you get from them is that they love us yeah and they're super passionate about us and they want they want us to win and they have the best of intentions mm-hmm. so that's different from what you might see online where sometimes it, it comes out it you know, in, yeah. in text, it can come off as pretty negative. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to interpret. You guys fucking suck as love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that guy honestly might love you. You might yeah. have just wronged him somehow that you have no control over. And the, they're usually the first guys that come up to you and go like, sorry, man. It's just like, I was mad and you know, mm-hmm. I didn't mean it. But we've we spent a lot of time listening and, and talking with them and it feels like we're back in the shack now. Yeah. How do you feel? How do you receive that love? Are you all right with it? I mean, absolutely. It's. I mean, that's what I want most as an artist is is to be understood and to be appreciated for for who we are. 
and it's the greatest thing when it's it's we got these core people around us that feel that way well how have you like you, you know in in relation to setting the record straight or, or about like things that come at you i mean oh in, in now that it's been like what 96 2006 20 years since pinkerton have you know are you happier now with the way it's fallen into place as an album as opposed to you know when it happened yeah i, I was devastated when it came out and it's such a personal album and i, I put everything i had into it and uh it was it was really rejected and i felt humiliated and i felt guilty because like i kind of uh took my band down this road that wasn't really in anyone's interest it seemed at the time but over the years it's clear that it's it's really accumulated this this uh passionate base of fans that maybe any other kind of record couldn't have for us well they they got it well i mean because you like you know you're a deep dude and you know like and and your struggles you know around you know just being in the world and 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 your feelings uh you're a unique individual so to most normal people or people who are just sort of like there's only some weezer songs you know there's that moment where like that feeling i got you know or i get with 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 uh brian wilson yeah that like either people are gonna like sort of like get allow that into their hearts or sort of like can't too much him <laughs> yeah yeah because <laughs> i you know i listened to it again recently to you know to talk to you and it, it it's it's it it was i think the reaction was so so you know directly proportionate just to comparing it to the other record you know it wasn't you know it wasn't looking at that record on its own because if you look at it now with distance and not with expectation you know it makes complete sense uh-huh yeah you know totally it's, it's just like culturally they're like this isn't like the other one yeah and they just fucking turn on a guy yep can't blame them no yes you can blame them <laughs> you can't <laughs> But that sort of sent you in a spiral, didn't it, for like years? Yeah, uh, it took five years before I had the confidence to put out another record. But like, is it, it's my understanding that you kind of, you know, did you find yourself like what what was going on in those five years? I mean, were you depressed? Were you freaking out? Were you angry? Did you? Uh, well, it's in in retrospect, it's hard to appreciate it, but it it really seemed like we were done. Like there was no hope. Was, we were, a, you know, a one hit wonder. And so you this, felt that. Yeah, I mean there there was it wasn't until about 99 or 2000 that we started to hear like wait a minute actually there are some people out there who like Pinkerton. Uh there are some people who still want to see you guys live and we started playing again in 2000 with the Warp tour. Yeah. Um but until that point it was just living in an apartment in West LA. You guys were the fucking band and you're like we're done. Yeah. Ugh. Just, uh, well, it started out innocently enough, like, uh, all right, beginning in 98, let's uh, let's get together in LA. We'll start working on the next record. I got some songs. And then after a month or two rehearsals, it's like, all right, guys, this I think this might take some time. So why don't you uh, go take a break, do whatever you want to do. I'm just going to hole up in this rehearsal room here and, and write a few more songs. And then the months go by and the years go by. And before you know it, it's 2000. And How many songs did you have? Uh, I don't know, um, but like hundreds, not not, a, not not enough good ones. Really? Yeah. Well, didn't you go on some sort of almost a lot of uh, bad ones? Uh, you know, manic, uh, uh, um, you know, systemizing of how to do that. When did that happen? Uh, it, you know, in in those years, I was uh, 
I started taking careful notes on what I was doing and trying to figure out what was working and what wasn't working and, and hoping that I could figure out what kind of processes would yield better results. In in just almost a mathematical way. Well, I mean, there wasn't literally um, algebra or, or addition or, or division or anything like that going on. But, well, what was the system? Um, well, I, I, never, I never settled on anything because it was like a moving target. I couldn't figure <laughs> out. <laughs> it's it questions like, should I start with a concept? Should I start with a chord progression? And, you know, there's so many different variables, and I would just shift them around and then subdivide and come up with even more variables and... Yeah, you can drive yourself nuts that way. Well, did you find that you were you were like OCDing out, or did you find that the the actual the process of it was was something you were maybe doing to to sort of comfort yourself or feel better or to occupy yourself? Did it become like this weird? You, you know, you'd have people over to your apartment and you'd have stuff on the walls. You'd be like, "I'm almost there, man. I got." I mean, how <laughs> how far into it did you get? I got real far. <laughs> <laughs> And, yeah. and I, I became pretty solitary, too. Right. Um, but I, I, I did come up with quite a few notebooks full of notes and diagrams and charts. So you kind of had a, a little bit of a, of a break, like a, almost, like a manic break almost. Uh, well, I mean, it's hard to generalize what, like sum up what I, what I was feeling during those years, but uh, it wasn't all bad. I mean, to to a certain extent, I like thinking that way and working that way and doing research and in in a way it's all kind of removed from uh anything practical or career minded it's just pure musical research which which i enjoy yeah did you didn't you go back to school as well um i i went back to school four times after the first album came out and finally graduated in 2006 during those uh so-called dark years though i was not in school oh really but before and after you were in school yeah. Um, so after the first Weezer album comes out, you go back to college? Yeah. Where'd you go? Harvard. That's good. Y- yeah, it was amazing. You did all right in high school then, I guess. Or no, did, you I did I did badly in, in high school. And, How'd you get into Harvard? Uh, well, I, from there I went, um, like I said before, I, I went to Santa Monica City right. College and did really well there. Yeah. And I got a year and a half of credit there. Um, and then Weezer was on tour at, for supporting the, the first album and- I was I got so bored. It's just you know every it was like the Groundhog Day thing on tour after a year and a half, and we toured through Boston and I I went up to Harvard and walked around. I was like, man, I just love to just take a break and read and study and uh, you know meet people and have relationships. And so I filled out the application and uh, put more emphasis on my community college transcript than my high school transcript, and they let me in. Did they know who you were? Yeah, I mean that was part of my admissions essay was talking about my experiences with the band and so literally you were like that you had written so I imagine be, you know judging by the the sort of reaction to the rejection of Pinkerton and the, the sort of like um This is before Pinkerton. No, right, but the but the well, I'm just in in is trying to figure out how your your mind works that <laughs> that the the repetition of the songs after a certain point on tour, let alone the sort of like, you know, the disassociation from reality and you know, the Groundhog Day element, I imagine just your brain kind of going soft with singing that album, you know, every day for a year just probably was like, I got to put new things in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just felt like 
my life was slipping by and I wasn't doing anything to reach my potential. Did was that put in you as a kid at all? I mean, did you, or is that something you wired in? Did you did you feel like uh, when you were younger there was a pressure on you to like you weren't doing enough or? Uh, no, if anything, it's the opposite. Like, I feel like there wasn't enough pressure. Right. There weren't enough opportunities and just kind of left on my own. That's almost worse. Yeah. Because, like, sometimes when I look back at my life, it's like the one thing I lacked was discipline. Why yeah. didn't somebody yeah. you know, make me do something? Exactly. Oh, you grew up with a sort of free kind of, like, parents who were on their own trips and did their own thing? Very much so. And I'm sure I got a lot of advantages because of that, but... Creativity, I bet you got maybe that's yeah maybe that was one of the results but i i do I, it was especially in my mid 20s i was i often felt like man why didn't somebody force me to learn the piano or why didn't somebody put me in a strict school or right. I, I could have become something great that's that's interesting cuz i i feel that myself that there you know there is that like cuz there's what what happens if you don't have a healthy sense of competition or achievement or somebody doesn't force you to do things you know in your best interest but you don't know at the time everything has everything becomes very important for me like you know like there's no like everything's life or death there's no sort of like oh, i guess that one didn't go well it's like no <laughs> <laughs> whereas i think that if someone just made you play soccer you know that you know you have a sense of like losing. It's okay, man. Uh-huh. You can go back to you know go back tomorrow. Like any time there was a rejection or a failure, it was just a personal attack on my personality identity. Mm. Like I couldn't figure out why everything was so fucking heavy to me, and 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 I eventually tied it in with that idea that if somebody had given me some context, you know, it just you know disciplined me a little bit and said you have to do this, and it's like no fuck you, and they're like no you're gonna do this, and then you sort of get through it and you. You take the the weird hurt of of learning a new thing, but you learn how to to sort of take those chances without them being so threatening. Because mm-hmm. when you got to do it on all, all on your own, you know, just to get to the point where you're going to do it, it's like, oh god, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did what did you study in Harvard? Um, I started out as a music major, and then I switched to English literature. Uh huh. Who was your guys? Who did you like reading? Um, to this day, my favorite is Shakespeare. You can oh really? Yeah. You got a big brain, boy. You got a big well, brain. Well, no, I mean, not big enough for Shakespeare, but the the little, the small percentage of his writing that I can appreciate is is just unbelievable to me. It's it, it's pretty amazing. It all came out of one guy. Yeah, yeah. So every, you know, every six weeks or so, I'll do these nerd nights where I invite um, people on Twitter, twenty, thirty people to uh-huh. come join me, and I get them all tickets, and we go see Shakespeare together. Do you, are you able to sort of keep it together with the narratives of those plays? Because like I, I can read it a bit. I never really locked in because I have a hard time reading plays. But when I see them, I have a very hard time, you know, following things. Mm-hmm. Do you? Well, I studied a lot in school. Oh, so yeah, I've yeah. written essays on on the most of the on a lot of the plays. So you know the arcs and the nuances. And yeah, that. and and I just get the DVDs. I go see them live. I read them. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's only ten or fifteen that you see any with any regularity so you just watch the same ones over and over again yeah yeah you start to understand a little bit of it you know with it, how did that did it do anything for your writing style do you think it influenced the, the the depth or the style of of the way you approach songs is that possible it doesn't seem possible yeah i don't know i mean what i get from it more than anything else is the the depth of emotion you can get just from words and right Boy, it's just it sets the bar so high. 
um, and, and it inspires me. Yeah. So you so you just kept going back to get that English major. Yeah. And I, I know that you had an, uh, an, a unique upbringing. I, I didn't do a, a ton of research, but can we talk about it a little bit? Sure. Um, you were in Connecticut, right? Yeah, born born in New York. Um, my parents were part of a, a Zen center, the first I think the first Zen center in the states in Rochester. Yeah, and they split up when I was about four, and my mom took me to the uh, Satchidananda Ashram in Connecticut. Yeah, um, under the guru Sach- Swami Satchidananda, who was the guy who gave the opening speech at Woodstock. Really? <laughs> so we we um, I grew up on his ashram in Connecticut. What? Is, but is that like a, a? So he was around. Yeah, um, he he had several ashrams around the world. So yeah, he, he kind of go between them, but he was around a lot. And was it like like you ate, everyone ate together? Everybody was there. Like, it was just, it was post sixties, right? Really? Yeah, this is seventies. Right. So, uh, and and people just lived on the property all year round. Um, there there were a lot of people who lived on the property, and then a lot of people in the community around the property, and then also people would come from all over the world to see Satchidananda and to see the ashram. Did you feel like when you, so how old were you? Like you were young, you were like five and six? Yeah, or? four to 11. So you were in it. Yeah. And you, uh, did you have reverence for that guy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's hard to know how much understanding of, you know, a little kid can have or, or faith a little kid can have. Um, but, um, you know, I, 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 I believed as much as a kid can believe for sure. And but it's rare though as a kid and it's unique as a kid to uh you know Jesus is one thing cuz you know he lives in the sky. But like to to actually have the guy, you know, there and you know, Yeah. It, well, he he wasn't he no one said he was a god on earth. It was more more about the practices and uh we did meditation in school every day and yoga and karma yoga which was um basically chores or s- service. Sure. Uh feeding ponies and getting selfless. Yeah, working for other people. So uh-huh. uh, it was more about those kinds of things rather than worshiping a, a person. Right. But there must have been that sense of reverence around. There was a sense of like, this guy's pretty special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you, uh, did you, do you continue? Do you, are you a spiritual person? Well, I, I definitely still meditate. And every year I, I go for 30 days uh, to a meditation center and, um, you know, all day long, just meditate in silence. How do you do it? Did you learn how to do it when you were a kid? Because I, like, I've been told I need to meditate, and I get, I get antsy. Mm. Yeah, I get antsy too. Yeah, after all this time, it's yeah. it's not easy, but um, that's why I, I get the benefit from trying to work with that antsiness. Yeah, what 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 are some of? Uh, how do you do it? Well, I do if a technique were... called vipassana uh-huh. since uh, two thousand three. And it's basically just observing the sensations on my body uh-huh. and tr- uh, in as much detail as possible and without judging them or reacting to them. Like, okay, my finger hurts. It's, yeah. It's going away. Yeah. Uh, not not that you need to do uh, a dialogue about it, but just really put all your attention on exactly what you're feeling. Yeah. And, and, and what does that do? Well, it does quite a lot. Yeah. Maybe more than anything else. It, it gives me just a little bit of separation between what's coming at me and then how I respond. So um, hopefully I'm responding a little a little more wisely now than before when, uh, when I would often shoot myself in the foot. Yeah, you, so you're <laughs> volatile. Uh, uh, Angry? I've, I've made a lot of 
big stupid mistakes. <laughs> what's what's uh, what's what's yeah. make them right? <laughs> what was your biggest mistake in your mind? What was my biggest mistake? Well, I don't I don't know if I want to uh, expose that in public. <laughs> oh, so it wasn't a public mistake. Um, like, do you have like because there is a, a an, an element of the human mind, I guess that you know you don't you don't really want to have regrets, you know, and and, and depending on how hard you on are on yourself or, or or what you think your transgression was that that's that's a life's work in and of itself mm. is to not to have those regrets yeah i don't know if it's so much about single big mistakes it's more like just daily little decisions mm-hmm. you know they they all add up so um i i hope now that i i can can react um with a little more calmness and uh wisdom and not react out of um, anger or defensiveness, yeah, or greed. Right? Were you uh, were you were you a scary guy at one time? I've gone through so many different phases, and people who know me for a long time would I think would would agree. Like, there's times where like you couldn't you could maybe not be able to associate one version of me with the version of me from a few years later. And you think that was completely um, uh, sort of conditional like like relative to circumstance or do you think it's your do you have uh other issues well i think through it all i've always just been trying to figure out how to make great music and to right. make better music yeah and it's driven me to do all kinds of crazy things and and at the same time like you said the circumstances around me change and so i have to change uh-huh do you but you never thought you had like a, a psychological issue mm, not like um not like a clinical issue that no ne- ne- required medication or no 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 oh, that, well that's good because that's one way to go that was not the way you went you went with meditation which is better uh well and for some people I mm. mean I, I'm sure there are more extreme cases where meditation wouldn't be helpful and you you need some kind of right professional help but you never felt that no well, that's good that's good that's healthy because do you have a fear of that of looking at it that way you never once thought like well maybe you know, I'm here in my apartment with a lot of papers, and I'm not talking. To- <laughs> I'm not really talking to anybody, and I'm not shaving. Uh- <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I there was always just this, even just a tiny core inside of me that was like, I'm, I may appear completely insane to everyone else, but I know I'm the sane one. Yeah, sure. You know what? You know who says that? Who? Crazy people. <laughs> you seem okay, man. You seem pretty good. I was nervous. I don't know what. Uh, yeah, you, you come with a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, things humming around you. The really? Idea. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I, and like, I don't. You know, because I I like your band. I've listened to it. You know, but I know there are people that are like really. You know, like that live for it. Is there, is there some? Sp- is somebody specific tell you something or did you read no something? no but you know yeah it, it's like um because i knew the the big press when i think that uh, like initially like right out of the gate when the first wizard comes out you you were like a i'm i and uh you're not a virgin maybe or not having sex right that was uh a, that no was, um wasn't it something am i well that's true but not by choice um i, I wasn't a virgin but um let's see I think when I started meditating 2003 through 2006, that's when I was celibate. 
Oh, way up. Yeah, because yeah, I just remember there was this, like, you, you know how the, how pop culture things, I didn't, you know, I wasn't on the pulse of things, but there was this idea that you were, like, abstinent and, you know, you were saving up your energy to do uh, other things. And, like, and I thought that was very deliberate and it was ascetic, you know, asceticism in, in, in a certain way and that you had this methodology to, but it seems like there were a lot of methods going on that you were trying to, to to feel better and comfortable and do the best creative work you can do. Yeah. Um, and I had experimented with celibacy earlier for, for the reasons you just mentioned. Kind of like you want to save, I don't know. Chi. Yeah. Save your like chi. Uh, but the three-year celibacy thing was, was totally different. That, that was, was right. But initially there was a, a word out was that you were doing that. You were saving your... That would have been more in the in those dark years. Okay. When, when the Blue Album came out, I think... Uh, I just, I I wasn't celibate, right? What do you think it is about the uh, the Eastern aesthetic that 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 you find compelling? Um, because I like I don't know much about it, but there is this sort of sense of 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 minimalism and order, and 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 um, there's a an insane work ethic. Yeah, it, Japan has been fascinating to me for a long time, and um, maybe. I think everything you just mentioned is has been intriguing to me, but but also, like the sense that they have um, greater control over their minds and bodies, mm-hmm. and um, just maybe growing up in the West, I felt like uh, we were a little out of control. So yeah. <laughs> I, I was intrigued by Japanese. But it's also interesting because of just from talking to you for a few minutes that that you know they're very hard on themselves they expect a lot of mm, themselves and yeah. and you know that there's a tremendous shame around not doing all you can do in the best job possible and there's a a shame around dropping the ball mm. so to speak yeah and you know and I, and i i think like cuz like in that culture like you know shame the the rituals around shame can you know be death you know self inflicted death uh-huh and that's pretty heavy, man. It's a heavy work ethic. Yeah, I think uh, very uh, relatively high rate of suicide in Japan. Right, and that that I think that's probably part of it too, huh? Part of my fascination. Yeah. Uh, I can't. I just can't escape the idea of like two things. Uh, you know, going back to going to Harvard and it being Harvard, and you you know having a tremendous amount of sex success already. You're like, no, I'm not. I'm not there. I'm not good enough. I got to know more. I got to do this. And I got to do it at the best school in the world. <laughs> you, you know? And then years later, you're like, I got I to gotta crack this pop song. This equation has got to be here. That's it. To me, that, I mean, it's creative and it's, and it's ambitious and, and, and it's um, self-actualizing. Uh, but it, it's also like it's a, lot of, a, lot, a lot to put on yourself to go huh. to Harvard. And... Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think of it that way. I guess I'm... Uh pretty driven but as long as i'm not making myself too miserable it's probably not a bad thing but you never were a drug guy huh no that's good yeah that is good because like in in rock and roll i mean you, you see that shit all the time you, you don't do anything nope never have just not an interest no i've i've tried i've tried i went through phases yeah, yeah but since 2003 i've been totally clean and sober oh yeah yep and it just just you know, on your own you just like, yeah, made just, a decision. Yeah, I didn't join a group, but um, and I didn't have any addiction. But um, it's you know that's the time I became celibate too, and uh, started so, started meditating. And it was actually partially inspired by this 
um, the, my teacher, meditation teacher, and and these courses. If you want to get, if you want to advance past the introductory ten day course, and you want to get into the very serious courses, you have to leave all that stuff behind. You can't go into a forty five day meditation course just having like done a bunch of drugs and slept with a bunch of people. Yeah, because your mind will be going nuts, and it's so hard to make it through one of those courses. You have to be pretty balanced already. Really? No addictions or anything like that, yeah. Like, I just, like, your mind does go nuts carrying all that stuff. You know, there's a, yeah, I mean, I deal, you know, it's like, you know, when you got that kind of clutter around, you you know, and you realize, like, just how much you're doing to distract yourself from yourself. Yeah. And, and, you know, who's involved? (laughs) You know, you kind of make this list of, like, oh, my God, I'm carrying a lot of garbage. So you just got all rid of it, all of it. Yeah. So you didn't have sex for how long? Three years. Must have been, how was it that first time out? Brief. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. It was my wedding night. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. Do you think it, did it all pay off for you? I mean, do you think that it, that, that period, do you think it re sort of, it rerouted you and it's someplace you can stay now? That you, uh, you may do you not feel like you're gonna like go off reservation again? No, there's no way. No good. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, so so much more content and and you have children now too. Yeah, I have two kids and uh, it's, it's a good life and can't imagine throwing it away for something so uh, ephemeral as the perfect pop song or s- sex or drugs. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll keep the you want maybe 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 the perfect pop song still attainable. <laughs> now are your folks still alive? Yeah. You get along with them? Yeah. Did you always? Well, um, I've always gotten along great with my mom, and my when my parents split up, my dad um, went. Eventually, he was born again and joined the army and was stationed wow. stationed in Germany for about twenty years. So I didn't see him or talk to him much when I was growing up. Born again. Yep. Christian. Yep, he is. Uh, he's a he's a bishop now in the Pentecostal Church. Wow, that's crazy to me. <laughs> Your parents were real searchers. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you know much about where they came from before, like you, your grandparents and stuff? Well, my father's parents are from Italy, mm-hmm. and um, they're Roman Catholic and right. Um, my grandfather was a shoe shoe repair guy in oh, Rochester. God bless him. Yeah, and in Rochester is a shoe repair guy. Yeah, it's great. You know what? You know shoe repair guys are they're they're important, and especially at that time. You got to have your shoe repair guy. Yeah. Did you ever go to like his shop and stuff? Well, his shop was in the front of the house, and um, <laughs> in the house he lived in. I lived there some of the time, and but I lived close by the rest of the time. So yeah. there's that smell of leather and yeah. stuff, work being done at benches. Yeah, yeah. From a very early age, I'll I'll never forget that smell. And um, I actually, my name for him was actually Doot Doot, and that was because of the sound of his hammer. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah rhythmic. Yeah. <laughs> Doot Doot. What did your dad do? Well, the year I was born, actually, two months after I was born, he was on, he played drums on a jazz record with um, for Wayne Shorter. Really, from Weather Report? It was before Weather Report, right before Weather Report. In between Bebop and Weather Report. Yeah. And, wow. Um, so he's a jazz drummer. Yeah. And I think sometime after I was born, he, he gave that up and 
I'm not sure what he did. It's just maybe different odd jobs, maybe a painter. Yeah. And he was part of the Zen Center. Right. So there was a time where your parents were divorced yet still in the same Zen Center? No. He took off. Yeah, they kind of split from each other and the Zen Center at the same time, I, I believe. Were you ever into jazz at all? Uh, I was in the high school jazz band as a guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, you fucking, you can really shred now. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing about listening to Weezer is that there is this pop, I, there is an idea of um, very definitive modern pop music and power pop music, but, you know, pop chords, and then all of a sudden there's these guitar solos. You're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> you still do a lot of them, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm the solo guy. Um, like it's it's astounding, dude. It's it's like you know it's like Brian May, or it's like you know, there's there's just moments where you know you have the, the and I think that's what makes Weezer great is you have these like huge chords that are just sort of melodic and they have a pop sensibility, and then there's like this guitar that just comes out. It's like where did that come from? Huh? It's great. I I don't even register it as as something all that interesting. It's just. It's the way you play. Yeah. <laughs> but you're so proficient in, 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 and your heart is in the, you know, your early heart is in this type of music. Yeah. That, you know, is not, it's not counterintuitive because it works fine. Music is music, but it's definitely from that world, you know, from your <laughs> world, you know, you're, because it's sort of interesting, like how you must have decided the sound of Weezer because you said earlier that, you know, Okasic and, and, you know, you, you guys knew what you were doing. You knew you were making a tremendous oh, shift. It was very, very intentional we were going to restrain ourselves as much as possible and completely shift from uh, an ingve type of sound to uh more like an amateurish thing like velvet underground or you listened it up yeah and you changed the chords it just to give you some specifics on on guitar um, you know, but in, in 1989, I was doing sweet picking and, of course, palm muting and wah-wah bar and fast picking and, and all of that went out the window. For the Blue Album, there's not even a single palm mute. Mm-hmm. Is, you were conscious of that. You literally yeah. had to stop yourself. You and stop we, your hand. We would beat each other up if one of us accidentally played something a little shreddy. <laughs> no shreddy. Yeah. That's amazing. I guess that the victory of that restraint, because I mean, when you can shred, when you guys can really do it, I mean, the amount of sort of like, you know, cock driven relief possible is profound because you can just like, and just like punch it all the way through. So there must have been, because that makes sense to me now, man, because like, you know, when you can shred, you can push all your energy right forward. So if you're pulling all that stuff back and the power has to be in your voice and the chords, then it becomes this larger, almost like, you know, building thing. Yeah, I think that something like that happened. Yeah, that makes sense, man. That's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but you get along with your old man now? Yeah. That took some time? Um. Well, it just took us getting back into each other's lives. Yeah. Um. Like I said, he was in Germany. Now he's back uh, He's in, in Marina Del Rey and... See him every now and then, and gets along with the grandkids. Grandkids tend to make a big difference, and yeah, yeah, they love him. And oh yeah, that's fucking. That's he's, a, he's cool. Yeah, and he's not too. He doesn't lay the religion on you. No, I mean he's so passionate about his faith, and um, it's when you believe when you believe something that much, and 
it's it's hard not to want to share it with other people and you know and in that in that religion it's they they want to save people and gosh like of course he would want to save his son but i think at the same time it's you you got to learn to to respect other people and their point of view and there's only so much you can do or say and he's he's okay with that yeah i mean the uh, he invites me to see him preach and i and i i love going to see him preach and is he good yeah yeah he delivers yeah it's it's so passionate and and musical there's like a band playing the whole time the whole hour he's preaching and it it builds to this tremendous climax and oh yeah it's it's so it's great for me to see someone who shares genes with me performing because i see in him the same kind of interest introspective person but he's up there in the spotlight and he's got to connect to an audience and I see the things he does, and it inspires me and gives me ideas for what I can do, too. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Just there's a build to it. Like, if someone's a good pe- preacher, especially a Pentecostal preacher, there's a rhythm, right? Does he have that, yeah. does he have that rhythm? Yeah. Oh, that's impressive. And I, I see him look at his the other people up on, this, on the stage, and he's connecting to the other musicians and the singers, and uh, I can tell he's just he's in his own little world up there with them, and and that's how I feel on stage with Weezer. Yeah. And and also you know that he comes from yeah, you know, he's got music in him. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean he, he plays some he played some bebop drums at some point. Yeah. So that's in there. And so that it, it's interesting to make a genetic connection. And also you specifically as a front man. Like I I've had this realization recently about you know the nature of front men in general but you're i mean you're a little different in that you know you're such a proficient and um stylized musician as well like some front men are just you know nut jobs who sing but <laughs> but like so much it seems of the tone of the music and the um the material within the music is is really you know driven and, and compelled by by your emotions and your experience so I imagine to have that simpatico relationship with these guys, to know that they're following your brain in a certain way, but yet do their part in it, uh, is got to be kind of a, a charge. But also I imagine ha- there had to have been times where it was just sort of like, you're not getting it. Mm. Has there? Well, by the time we're, we're on tour and we're up on stage and just playing, I don't think, I, I'm not thinking of who came up with what um, at all. It's just here we are and let's let's just blow each other away with and, how awesome we are. <laughs> and do you do it? Yeah. I uh, saw you in Bumper Shoot. What was that, 2007, 8? Oh, yeah. Um, maybe even 2010. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, that wasn't a good show. I'm sorry you saw that one. <laughs> really? You remember that? Yeah. Why? What happened? I just felt really awkward. Had it been a while? No. I think we had... I think we had played at least a few, like a week before that we've been Uh playing and every show had been amazing and then that one wasn't. Just didn't feel right. Yeah. Huh. I felt self-conscious. Oh. Didn't get in the zone. Oh yeah? That still happens? Sometimes. Not so often. How does that manifest itself? What does self-conscious mean? Like you couldn't like let loose and and be... Yeah. Can't just thinking too much and not... You know, self-critical thoughts right. rather, rather than goosebumps. Right. Well, that was the night, though, because it was like, you know, I'd always, you know, been familiar with, with 
a lot of you guys' stuff, but it was one of those moments for me where you guys were playing a lot of stuff from your entire catalog. And it was one of those moments where, you know, I'd listen to Weezer on and off, but it was one of those nights where I'm like, holy fuck, they got a lot of songs. You know, like, oh yeah, that's, you know what I mean? It's wild, the catalog that you've put together for yourself. Yeah, they they add up over the years. And it's, it makes for a, a cool show, especially in these giant shows where there's a lot of people who aren't so familiar with us. They, there's a lot of songs that it turns out they know. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Because it's just like it's it's almost like uh, you know songs you grow up with. Yeah. Um, do you feel that like especially with uh, with Pinkerton and so do you feel that you were um, a, a, a sort of seminal kind of motivator of you know what would be considered you know emo rock or a certain type of alternative rock? Do you feel that you've laid an influence on that? Like even that album is as as misunderstood as it was initially, I think that the people who it's important to and the musicians who thought it was a masterpiece uh, uh, immediately, I feel like it kind of propelled something. Yeah. Um, I often hear a lot of, when I meet other musicians, they, they bring up that album as, as an album that was important to them and mm-hmm. they they played those songs when they were younger. Who do, who do you like uh, watching now? Nothing nothing comes to mind. I mean, I like watching any I just love music. I love watching bands and anything. It's all interesting to me. You like being in show business. I mean, I I I, I wouldn't think to use that word, I know, that I know. phrase, but yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make it old-timey for you. Yeah. Yeah. What is this uh, TV project you got going? Honestly, I don't know much about it yet. These this these guys um the writer and and the producers came up with this idea yeah. and said asked me if it was cool if they proceeded with it and I said sure and they said all right we're going to call you a producer and I said okay and uh they haven't really done anything yet but we'll see like you have no idea it's it, based on you it, I I mean I I doubt it's going to have much to do with me uh, other than the just the basic premise that that I lived through um, I'm sure they're going to, because, I mean, my life was, you know, not actually not all that interesting. It was a lot of studying and tests and not any not anything worth a TV show. I don't know. Like, I, I would spend uh, 12 episodes, you know, in, in the house with your notebooks. Well, we'll see. I, <laughs> I, I think they're going to come up with their own story, and it may not be about me, and it, I may not be involved in the process. So I was, you know, pretty surprised and freaked out that uh it became a big story last week uh, oh. when the when the network um uh, made that press put out that press Fox. release um and it, you know by the time it made made it to the 10th uh internet headline it was Rivers Cuomo to star in Weezer sitcom <laughs> <laughs> there you go better tell the guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, you know, we won't even know for a long time, but probably ne- by next summer we'll we'll have a better idea of what it is and if it's even going to happen. So are you going to do how many of those Weezer cruises did you do? Two, and they were just for fun. Initially, they were just for fun, but we quickly realized that it's it's an incredibly helpful and restorative coming together of Weezer and those core fans right where we get to learn so much about each other and bond and it just get, helps give give us so much focus and and helps remind us of who we are deep down inside and what we want to do 
Okay, now just to end uh, on this, on something I, we brought up earlier on this new record, like my impression of it on two or three listens was that it is sort of a return to form, you know, uh, like, you know, really first album form, obviously with Rick uh, producing. And there's that sound that, that, is, that is sweet and poppy and has the punch and the lyrics and there's, a, there's even a hook or two. And but you said that you know like half of it is like that, but you feel that half of it is is part of a, an evolution that was going on, you know, all the way through. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of define that? Well, even in the song "Back to the Shack," um, it's on the surface we're talking about going back to that old sound from '94. Yeah. But listen to it. There's nothing like that music on the Blue Album at all. It's like a very, uh, you know, like a big hard rock riff. Right. Um. And even the chorus has like this kind of uh, groove to it that we we've never done before. So that's just an example of something that's half classic and yet half very new that we couldn't have done before. So it's nuanced in that way in your mind that you because of of how you constructed the sound of Weezer early on, you know when you're like, no, we're rocking out a little bit. That but maybe the 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 common ear is not going to be able to identify it immediately. Well, I think a lot of fans have made this, the same observation that I just did. Like, yeah. you know what? This doesn't sound like 94. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I think the, the fans that are really listening will, um, won't be fooled. But uh, there's also like this seven and a half minute quasi-instrumental at the end of the album. Of course, we had something like that on the Blue Album too. But in this case... On the Blue Album, it's the same four chords over and over and over again. It's like uh-huh. this ground bass that we um, are soloing over. This new one is is very different because the music continually evolves underneath the solos. It's uh, the the chords never repeat, and it just goes on and on into into ever new territory. And that's not something we would have done back then or could have done. Right? Have you been performing that piece live yet? No. Um, we planned to, to do the whole album front to back um, in October and November in several smaller venues around the country, um, but we haven't we haven't actually put in the work to um, learn these as a four piece yet. That's going to be kind of exciting to perform live. It's it's going to be unbelievable, and it's it's such a technically demanding piece, and there's so many parts that we actually um, our bass player had to have a new instrument built so we could pull it off. It's this uh, double neck. Um, bass and guitar that so he's g- going to be joining us on the five part solo our drummer also is going to have to play guitar at some point really yeah so all five of us will be shredding <laughs> together yeah, finally guitar. <laughs> finally this is it you've waited your whole life for this <laughs> full circle man yeah so so that's really exciting. So you've got like a little concept album within this album. Yeah. Well, that, I'm I'm looking forward to it. You're going to do a mixture of big spaces and small spaces on the tour? Well, this first tour is is just going to be pretty small spaces. Uh, I'm not sure where it's going to be in LA yet, but um, What are you thinking? I'm thinking um the Belasco Theater downtown. Oh yeah, I don't even know that place. Yeah, I think it's about 1500 capacity. Oh wow. Well, it was great talking to you. You seem well, and I'm and I'm happy about it. Thank you. You Thank, too. Thanks for talking to me, Rivers. You're welcome. That's it. That's our show. That was a, he's an interesting guy. He's an intense guy. 
Uh, I was nervous going in because I'd heard about the that he was intense and uh, and and difficult. But uh, once I got the gauge on him, I felt that uh, we had a very nice conversation, and he's. Uh, He's a good guy, and he's keeping it together, and he's grown, and he's at a good place in his life, and I and I felt happy about that. Um, what else? Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. I appreciate you listening to the show. Pick up some JustCoffee.coop at WTFPod.com. You know, leave a comment through Facebook. You know, look at the merch. We're going to restock the MTV shirts. I know. Maybe I need to make some new shirts. I, I'm just busy. I'm just busy, and um, I feel I feel okay. Don't get me wrong. All right, I feel okay. Okay, I do. I feel all right. I'm 51. I'm okay. I'm not freaking out. I'm not freaking out. Do I sound? Do I sound older? Do I sound? Oh, something's giving way. Something's happening. Something I think is relaxing. Either something's relaxing, or something is giving up. Is it important to know the difference? Is it? Boomer lives. <laughs> <laughs> 